from Mark 2, verses 3 through 8, 13 through 22. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves, and he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collection station, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding attendants cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Similarly, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and so are the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Father, your word is a seed, and our hearts are the soil, and we're asking you to Prepare the soil for the seed of your word, that it may germinate and grow and bear fruit. Fruit for our lives, for our neighborhoods, communities, for the whole world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Flannery O'Connor was mainly known for being a short story writer in the middle of the last century. Um, she, She had some peculiar habits. One of them was she had a huge flock of pea chickens, uh, up to 40 at one point, peacocks and peahens. And um, somebody asked her once, uh, why do you have all these peacocks? And uh, she, she refused to even justify the question with an answer. To her, it was self-evident. Why wouldn't you have these amazing birds in your life? Um, they were a nuisance. Uh, they ate everything that grew, especially beautiful things. And even if they weren't hungry, they would just pluck off the tops of the flowers just to do it. Um, But to her, uh, there was never a question about why she should have so many peacocks. 
And she liked to tell stories about what would happen when people would come and visit. So one story in particular I really like is there was a delivery man that came and saw a, a large peacock with, um, but the, the feathers were uh, not unfurled, so they were still furled. And uh, the delivery man really wanted to see the feathers of the peacock. And so the delivery man was waiting around and looking and walking around, and then he started sort of like uh, demanding it. Hey, you, show me your feathers. And of course, the peacock was not going to do that. And, he, and uh, she said, you know, if you just wait around, if you just wait around, eventually um, peacock will show the feathers, raise the tail. And uh, he waited, waited, and then he's like, I'm out of here. So he starts to drive away, and sure enough, as he starts to drive away, the peacock raises his feathers. And so she shouts at him as he's driving off, he's doing it, he's doing it. So... Um, the delivery man stops, the peacock is in the middle of the road, right in front of the delivery truck, and stands in front, feathers in full view, turns a little bit to the left so that all the feathers are gold, turns a little bit to the right, all the feathers are green. She says it's, it's like the peacock has just unfurled the universe in front of this delivery man. And, um, and so uh, she, she turns to him and she says, well, what do you think of that? And he says, man, those are some long, ugly legs. <laughs> Sometimes we, uh, grace is right in front of us. It's right in front of us. And for some reason, we're not seeing it. We're not looking at it. All we're seeing are some long, ugly legs. That's kind of what this passage makes me think of. Here in Mark 2, this is the very beginning of Mark. Mark doesn't have a nativity story. He gets right into it. And Mark 1 is pretty fast-paced. There's a lot going on in Mark 1. And Mark 2 slows down a little bit to kind of show us what's going on. And we get these stories back-to-back that Marissa read about what it's like when Jesus shows up. And one of the weirdest things about this is that here's a guy who's like healing all these people, feasting, I mean, life of the party. And the religious people are like, hey, no, you shouldn't do that. That's the wrong thing to do. You're bad. You shouldn't. You're, you're just a bad guy. And like every turn. It's not the pagans doing this. It's not the atheists. It's not even the government officials yet. You know, they, they will get involved. Um, but not yet. It's the religious folks. It's the spiritual folks. It's, it's these people who were very different from one another, but they all had this one thing in common, that when Jesus shows up, they're against it. I'm going to talk about this dynamic. I want, I want to talk about ways that we might miss grace, the ways that Jesus might be present and we're not seeing it. And what's so surprising to me and what we need to talk about is that the Gospels really hone in on the fact that sometimes it's spirituality. Sometimes it's religious practice that is going to keep us from seeing grace. And why in the world that would be? Here we are. I mean, it is so cold today. It is so cold. And yet, you're here. You're in a very small percentage of human beings. I'm here, too. I mean, I'm in the smaller percentage, okay? You're, you're in a small percentage. I'm even smaller because I'm the one who, like, works here. But, like... 
we're religious people, you guys. We just, we are. And so we have to talk about, of all the things that are going to go up against Jesus, why isn't the religious and the spiritual? Now, you'll notice I'm using those interchangeably. And it's, it's, it's pretty fashionable for, for folks to say that they're spiritual and not religious. And, and I, I get that distinction, but that distinction is not present here. So you can be both religious and spiritual and still miss it. And, and that was true of Jesus' time. Jesus had a lot of uh, religious groups around him, and some were definitely on the spiritual side, and some were very much on the religious side. You had people like the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were maybe on one far end. Like There was nothing spiritual or mystical or supernatural about anything. The Sadducees were like hardcore, in-the-world, practical, political um, kinds of people. You know, this is uh, like in the 50s when like Catholic priests were friends with senators and stuff like that. Like that's kind of what the Sadducees were about. And the other end was really probably the Essenes. And the Essenes, they're all about the dark and the light and they're the pure, holy, spiritual ones. And they had to get away from the world. They were the ones who preserved the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were the ones who wrote them down. And they were, they were all about this sort of like get away from the world so that we can have this mystical and, and super holy experience with God. And then the Pharisees are sort of in the middle. The Pharisees were this sort of like, um, we're, we're going to adapt the religion to the day. We're going to make it relevant to now. Um, we're we're going to, we're going to, and essentially, I mean, we could go on. I mean, there's even zealots. Zealots are are the ones who are, who are saying, we're going we're gonna to blow everything up so that we can have our kingdom come and that kind of thing. And, and it's interesting that these groups that are so, so different could have something so much in common with regard to Jesus. And I think it has to do with this. And, and th- we find this now with our own spirituality and our own religion, is that back then, um, reality was terrible. Like It was an awful, awful situation back then. Roman occupation, taxation was through the roof. There was no future for you and your kids. Like you were gonna be in debt your whole life if you were Judean. You were probably gonna get shipped off to some Roman war in some other province and you were probably gonna die. Or you were gonna be put to work on Herod's massive building projects and there was no workers comp. There was no safeguarding for the employees. There was no OSHA um, back then. And so if you were, and this is probably what happened to Joseph. We don't know for sure, but Joseph was a tradesman and he was probably put to work on these projects and they probably worked him to death. Life life was was miserable, absolutely miserable. And all these groups had a sort of a spirituality or religious practice that said, "How how can we transcend this? How can we transcend the awful experience of living in the world? How can we get out of this experience? And sometimes this is what we do with our religious or spiritual practice now, is we look for ways to transcend the difficulty of being in the world. Because life is still hard. It's different, right? I mean, we don't have the same, we have OSHA now. Thank God, right? Um, That's great. But life is still hard to live. And there are times when we want ways to sort of transcend out of the muck and out of the stuff of this world. And that tends to be what a lot of religious practice is about. And when I say religious practice and spiritual practice, that could be political practice. That could be all kinds of practices. Let's have a broad view of this. 
So, for instance, there's um, two. There's a, you know a form of um, uh, one of the spiritual practices is meditation, and the Bible talks about meditation. Meditation is pretty pretty um, commonly expect, accepted form of prayer throughout centuries and millennia. Um, but there's different kinds of meditation, and one kind of meditation basically says to take the things of the world and put them away, to 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 leave them behind. To, to move beyond the things of the world and get to sort of a higher plane. That's a sort of transcendent form of meditation. And Thomas Merton was somebody who, who wrote a great deal about this, and he said that Christian meditation is actually the opposite of that. It's going more deeply into the stuff of the world, not leaving it behind, not transcending it to a higher plane, but becoming closer to it in a way through Christ, through grace. That is why I think they couldn't see Christ. Because the thing about Christ, it, the, the one thing we can always count on is that he is going to be attached to the stuff of the world. He is tethered to all things because of the incarnation. He is never removed from it. He's never outside of it. We don't get closer to God by getting further away from the world because Christ has forever attached himself to the world in the incarnation. That's what it means. It never stops meaning that. Jesus does that. You see three kind of basic ways he does that here in the passage this morning. He's connected to suffering. He looks at the suffering of the man who's paralyzed and he says, I'm going to do something about that. And he does more than just heal. He also forgives sin. So whenever there's suffering in the world, Christ doesn't say, let's get away from it in order to suffer less. Christ says, we're, we might suffer more, but we're going to transform it. We're going to transform it through healing. That's why the early church chose this crazy symbol. Of all the symbols they could have chosen, they chose the, the torture device. Because uh, we're not getting away from suffering, we're transfiguring. So Jesus is closer to the suffering of the world. If you want to suffer less, there's a lot of religious and spiritual practice to help us do that. But that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about transforming suffering. So that's the first thing. The, the second thing is he calls just the wrong person. Levi is the absolute wrong person to call. You know, sometimes in movies, the bad guy is sort of sympathetic. And you're kind of like you root a little bit maybe for the bad guy. Or you're like, man, if we could just use his traits for good. Um, that, that is not what a tax collector was. A tax collector was really like a, just a rotten traitor. Just a gross, corrupt, um, nobody liked them. They were not sympathetic at all. And, and, you know, Jesus walking by and like, look at that dude. Hey, come be my disciple. No, Jesus, like that's not a thing. But he does it anyway. And then he like doubles down on it. And he's like, invite your friends. We're going to have a big party. This, so, so, so Jesus is not afraid of suffering. He goes further into it. And they, he's also not going to exclude any human being. There's not a single person that Jesus is going to say, that person is just out of bounds. Way, way too, way too, way too disgusting for this, this group on the building. He just doesn't do that. So he doesn't extract himself from people and he doesn't extract himself from suffering. And then the third thing that happens is he, he sits down and he feasts. He makes a home anywhere. Fasting for, for, the, for the scribes and the Pharisees, fasting was sort of this practice to sort of like 
you know, and again, fasting has a deep and wonderful tradition in Christianity. It depends on how you look at it. But, but, for, but for them, fasting was about, you know, seriousness, about the condition of the world. Everything's terrible and we have to fast because it's so awful. And, and so they look at Jesus and say, there should be no fasting. Life is miserable. And he says, but I'm here and I'm the bridegroom. And so we should be celebrating. Why do, we, why do we feast at, at, at weddings when the world is so awful, when there's multiple wars going on, when, when there's innocent people dying every day? Where do we get off feasting at all? That's a really, I think that's an important question. And the answer is that grace has come to be present. And if you're at a wedding and you don't feast, you're an awful person. I'm just going to say that. That is an awful thing to do. You should feast because love is in the world in spite of everything else. <laughs> Here is love. Here is love between a man and a woman, this couple, this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful couple. And we're saying, look, look, there's love in spite of everything else that's going on. Isn't that wonderful? Let's celebrate. That's what Jesus responds to the Pharisees when they say, um, you shouldn't be fasting. So it's those three things, the fasting, the calling of anybody, just anybody, and, uh, and everybody. And then the third thing is the, the connection into the world and into suffering. If we want to leave the world, if the world, and, and I'm, not, I'm not sugarcoating the way the world is, the world is, is a difficult place to live in. And if, and if the way to cope with the world is to transcend it, to get away from it, then that is a possibility. But if we do that, we're going to miss Jesus. We're going to miss Jesus and his grace because Jesus is forever present in the world. He is forever tethered to here. If we try to eliminate from our thoughts the ordinariness and everydayness of our lives, then we eliminate the presence of grace. Grace is nowhere but here. It's not up there. It's not out there. It's nowhere but present in our lives, in our relationships. Christ is incarnate in human flesh or he is not incarnate at all. You know, someone who I think can help us with this is folks who are uh, um, neurodivergent. Um, there, there's some difficulty in talking about folks who are neurodivergent because there's a lot of diversity in neurodivergence. So if I'm gonna say something about it, it's not gonna to apply to everybody who's neurodivergent. But for many, uh, what they, when they talk about spirituality, one of the things they say is that it's impossible for them to conceptualize some idea of God apart from stuff, apart from real stuff. So there's no mere idea. Rather, they see God in others. Or they see God in the broken bread and the crushed grape of the table. And honestly, this is just what the Bible says. Jesus is present in the poor. Jesus is present in the incarcerated. Jesus is present in those who are exposed to the elements. He says, whenever you feed or whenever you care for one of these, you care for me. It also says that the community of the church is the body of Christ. So we can see Christ in the church. Jesus says, remember me not with a picture of me in your mind, not with a, a movie image of me, but remember me in the feast of the bread and the wine. All real things, all part of the world, and all glimpses of grace. 
So if I'm going to be uh, against spiritual practice, I feel like I should give you some new practices to, to, uh, to hold on to. Because uh, I think it's important to have practices or to refigure some of the practice. So here, here are some suggestions, and you can come up with your own. Um, uh, one of them, bird watching, I think is a great spiritual practice. We should be bird watching. Why? Because bird watching forces us to sit in one place long enough. I don't know, have you ever been bird watching with somebody who really knows what they're doing? You go with them, and, and, uh, and you're like, where are all the birds? And you're, and you're like chatting, and you're, you're talking, and you're like, you're like, um, I don't know, I don't know what you're, uh, what we were doing, whatever. And then like after five minutes, they're like, oh, I've got 15 here, I've seen. I don't know what you've been doing, but I, I've seen like 15 birds. And there's just something about bird watching that trains us to see, to look. Another one is tending a fire, uh, especially a fire in the home, uh, if you, or outside. And if you don't have a wood stove, I'm sorry for excluding you, but um, there, I was just thinking about this because it's enforced idleness. Like you, you have to be present to the fire, but you really can't do anything else or else it's gonna go out. And so you're stuck there, and then you're forced to sort of be aware of everything around you. Um, uh, on a little bit uh, different scale, I do think uh, any sort of healing or binding of wounds, any practice like that, is another sort of spiritual practice. Anytime we're engaged in healing is a, is a spiritual practice of, practice of attending to grace. Forgiveness is one. Befriending enemies, or at least um, people we have very little in common with. If you actively cultivate a friendship with somebody who you have very little in common with, you'll be surprised what you're able to see. Um, sticking with friends when they're blowing up their lives. Uh, this, is a, this is sort of a personal one with me. A good friend of mine having a really hard time, and I've just decided to be with him. You know, I've just decided I'm going to stick with this guy no matter what. And, and I've, I've learned that that is a practice of seeing grace. Um, of course, feasting. My goodness. It's a, we, Sandy and I were just talking about other, the irony uh, yesterday about how we, there's like a million cookbooks of amazing recipes and very little feasting going on. Like we have, we have the information to feast. We can have the best feasts. Um, have you ever seen Babette's Feast? That uh, movie, Babette's Feast? Uh, there's one of, the, one of the dishes is a duck that they eat, like a baby duck that they eat. Um, it is incredible, the recipes that we have. But we, but we don't feast very often. And so the, the discipline of feasting, I think, is important. Um, because through feasting, we see each other. We see the food. We're filled with gratitude. We're doing something that doesn't need to be done. I think uh, gathering here. Certainly singing. Singing is definitely, and not just singing here, singing in the shower, singing, making up songs while you're making peanut butter and jelly. That's one of my personal favorites. Uh, that's definitely singing. Um, I will add, I will add some other, I, I will add some uh, unusual ones like weeping, for instance. Um, I, I would argue that they go hand in hand. Um, the Pharisees, the Sadducees in these groups they, were, they weren't exactly, uh, we find Jesus weeping far more than them in the Bible. So there is a place for grief and, and, and definite lament and saying the world is not supposed to be this way. So it's not all just that. And, and I don't want to leave out, if you want to keep peacocks, I strongly recommend it. Strongly recommend it. <laughs> Jesus had one sermon that he preached 
The kingdom of God is at hand. He's not asking for us to build it or to look for it someplace else. He's inviting us to taste and to see that kingdom, to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, to see the universe unfurled in the feathers of a bird instead of just its long, ugly legs. Amen. Father, give us the eyes to see grace. And the grace to share it with others. We thank you for your son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace.